drawn to the inner lives of other people, what they care about, what they most desire, what causes them pain, what brings them joy. These inner lives become my characters. I am here to share their stories. Liz Gaffro, writer, poet, storyteller. Welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Thank you for listening in. Bookstores, libraries, and coffee shops are great places for book readings. There is something extraordinary about hearing the voice of an author reading their stories. Their voice and intonation are nuanced by the many hours of effort putting pen to paper. They created the characters, structured the plot, and lived every twist and turn that creates bumps in the storyline. Living in the reality of COVID-19, book readings at public libraries and bookstores have been curtailed. We are now learning to embrace technology in new ways. So welcome to a podcast series, Authors Reading Their Books, which will recreate the reading spaces in a virtual venue. I invite you to put the kettle on and join the conversation on tea, toast, and trivia. I am your host, Rebecca Budd, and I am looking forward to sharing this moment with you. I am thrilled to introduce Elizabeth Gaffro, who has graciously agreed to be our guest author, reading her novel, Telling Sunny, a story of a son who becomes an afterthought told by a mother who had once loved the vaudeville show. Telling Sunny is available on Amazon, and now you are going to hear Elizabeth Gaffro reading from her book, Telling Sunny. Thank you, Rebecca. I am so pleased to share a glimpse into Telling Sunny with your listeners. For a brief bit of setup, Fabi is the girl who loves the vaudeville show. It comes to her small Vermont village once a year. She's very eager to learn all about show business, and that leads her to succumb to the charms of one of the players, uh, Slim White, which of course is a stage name. His given name is, is Louis Cattell. Louis ends up marrying Fabi as a, as a lark and takes her with him on the road until he decides to send her home. And that's the end of that. The first selection I'm going to read is when Fabi and her sister Josephine first meet Slim White. The second selection is when he sends her home. Chapter 5 The day after the vaudeville show left town was the 4th of July, the annual parade a decidedly anticlimactic ending to the week. Shuffling old veterans who should have been kept at home in the shade, Wheezing Sousa marches, farmers' wagons festooned with limp crepe paper streamers, Goofy Dolan dressed as Uncle Sam, and, inexplicably, a single Holstein clopping along with bunting draped over her back, led by a small boy, also draped in bunting. As Fobby stood on Main Street with her family watching the parade, she thought she saw Slim White in the crowd across the street. But as soon as she recognized him, she knew she had to be mistaken. After the parade was over, 
the entire village trooped over to the ball field at the high school to eat barbecued chicken and limp coleslaw in the blazing sun. Fabi and Josephine were lucky enough to overhear Clyde Jira at the table behind them, making plans to take a group of kids swimming at Kidder's, and they invited themselves along. Nine kids ended up crammed into the small roadster, sitting on each other's laps and hanging over the sides, but nobody cared. Swimming at Kidder's was worth the discomfort of getting themselves there. After they had returned home from swimming and eaten supper, Fabi's mood had improved to the point of her agreeing to go with Josephine to listen to the band concert. There would be more Sousa marches. Some old duffer would attempt to sing America the Beautiful through ill-fitting dentures as the microphone crackled and moaned. Then would come the inevitable polkas and worn-out ballads from the 1890s. However, Fabi felt so relaxed from swimming all afternoon, her limbs lightened, her skin refreshed. She would listen to it all without a thought of complaint in her head. No sooner had the band started to play the first number than Fabi felt a presence behind her and someone said, May I join you, ladies? Fabi turned around and there was Slim White, big as life, wearing a straw boater with a red, white, and blue band, which had obviously come out of a prop trunk. I thought you'd left town. Slim White lowered himself to the grass. Overslept and missed my train, actually. Whoever heard of a train leaving the station before its scheduled time? It happens all the time, Fabi said. When there's no one left in the depot, the conductor sees no point in waiting around, so he signals the engineer and they leave. I suppose there's a certain balled-up logic to that, although it would never pass in the city. Try that in Boston and the station master would have a riot on his hands. You could have taken the afternoon train, Josephine said. Nah, I figured I may as well stay for the festivities. I hadn't seen a Fourth of July parade since I was discharged from the Army. I thought I saw you, Fabi exclaimed. You did? Why didn't you wave or do something to catch my attention? Before Fabi could respond, Josephine said, What did you think of the parade, Mr. White? Oh, I enjoyed it. Very small town. Although I didn't quite get the cow. At that point, the band stopped playing, and there was a long pause as Sterling Judd slowly got to his feet, carefully set his cornet on his chair, and shuffled over to the microphone to launch a quavering rendition of America the Beautiful, the sound of which appeared to stun Slim White into silence. He found his voice again when the polka started. I once saw an act get booed off the stage for playing polkas with ten accordions, build themselves as Calvin's accordion cavalcade. You never heard such a god-awful racket in your life. They were so bad, people backstage were booing them. I don't understand, Fabi said. How could they be in a show if they weren't any good? Slim White laughed. You're kidding me, right? 
You don't actually believe that an act has to be good to be booked for a show, do you? Well, yes. He reached over and squeezed her hand. That's so sweet! If every audience could be like you, no player would ever be handed back his pictures, and everything would be Jake for small-timers everywhere. Fabi smiled to herself at the thought of her enjoyment, her own enjoyment, giving people with big dreams and little talent employment and some measure of satisfaction. Chapter 32 So there she was, trundled onto a train for the two-day ride north. Lewis's fellow players having taken up a collection to pay for a Pullman ticket and meals in the dining car. She could feel the long reach of the locomotive's engine, thrumming and throbbing as it built up enough steam to pull the string of cars back through the deep south, up through the Carolinas, around the Delmarva Peninsula, and finally into New England, like a motion picture playing in reverse the end of the film coming loose from the reel in St. Albans, flapping around and around and around until the projectionist finally stopped it. Lewis hadn't seen her off, the departure time for her train conflicting with his call time for the matinee. Maisie had called for the taxicab and stood at the curb to wave goodbye as it pulled away, and at the station the cab driver had found the porter to see to her suitcase. As she waited for the train to pull out of the station, Fabi scanned the faces of the people on the platform, looking for one that regretted the departure of his loved one, wanting nothing more than to see her step off the train and run back into his arms. But all seemed indifferent, turning their backs to walk away before the train had even begun to move. Even so, she continued to watch the platform, waiting for someone to turn around and wave, someone to cry out, I'll miss you. After several false starts, the train began to move, drawing away from the platform, making its way through the maze of tracks in the train yard, warning bells clanging, We're leaving! We're leaving! By the time the conductor came through to punch her ticket, they had left the begrimed Birmingham skyline behind, factory chimneys obliviously disgorging black smoke. Passing through Alabama to reach their first major stop in Atlanta took a surprisingly short time, as the train sped through acres of stubble farmland, the brittle remains of the previous year's crop unidentifiable here and there being turned under by a lone man behind a mule and a plow. After the train had come to a stop at the Atlanta station, she stood up with the other passengers to get off, needing to walk to try to ease the swelling in her feet and ankles. As she stepped off the train, she misjudged the distance and stumbled. If there hadn't been a porter there to catch her, she would have fallen. Is there someone with you, missus, he said as he stood by her side to ensure she had regained her footing. She shook her head. I'm traveling alone. There should be someone with you, missus, he said, 
turning away to finish his sentence as he helped a woman with two young children in your condition. On second thought, it was probably not a good idea for her to go wandering through Terminal Station by herself, unable to see her feet or locate her center of gravity. She would walk along the platform instead. However, scarcely had she begun when the porter who had helped her off the train approached her. Begging your pardon, missus, but you shouldn't walk so close to the edge. You could fall. She let him help her back onto the train, but instead of going to her seat, she waddled up and down the length of the car, steadying herself with her hand on the backs of the empty seats until the other passengers returned to claim them. Once the train got underway again, it was time for lunch, and she was seated at a table with a pleasant young woman named Ernestine, who had an encyclopedic memory for motion picture storylines, along with an apparently irresistible impulse to relate them, scene by scene, to strangers. As Ernestine prattled on about romance, scandals, and near-death escapes from every manner of disaster, train wrecks, swirling rapids, unexpected cliffs, vampires. Fabi's own story receded further and further into the background, and she was sorry to see the lunch end. She spent the rest of the afternoon watching the train cut a never-ending swath through the pine trees lining the South Carolina rail bed until the low country pines gave way to the more mountainous terrain of inland North Carolina. When it was time for dinner, Ernestine was nowhere to be seen, and Fabi found herself seated across from a woman with an unfortunate overbite that caused her to speak with such a pronounced lisp it took all of Fabi's concentration to respond to the woman's game attempts at small talk without asking her to repeat herself. Later, when the porter came through the car to make down the berths for sleeping, Fabi began to worry that she would not fit in the narrow space allotted to her that she and the baby would protrude into the aisle to be jostled by every single man, woman, and child making their way to and from the toilet. As it turned out, the berth accommodated both her and her belly, although not at all comfortably. As she pulled the curtains closed to button them, she knew she was in for a long night, what with the confined space the clacking of wheels over points in the track, and the sounds of so many strangers in close proximity making night noises in their sleep that shouldn't be overheard by others. As the train sped through the unseen night, every mile it traveled took her closer to White River Junction, where she would change trains for St. Albans. Once in St. Albans, she would have to get off and wait for the next train to Enosburg, which ran only twice a day, once in the morning and again in the afternoon. In all likelihood, she would have to wait for several hours in the St. Albans Depot by herself, with no husband beside her, visibly pregnant, wondering how it had all gone so wrong. She slept fitfully, as she tried to imagine what her homecoming would be like, walking up Depot Street lugging her suitcase, only to find the once towering maple trees 
now twisted skeletons decaying on the ground, their bark scabrous, their brilliant foliage reduced to leaf mold. The Neil children would be scattered to the four winds, their mother having become too sick and downtrodden to care for them, the eldest boy now in prison. Sally the Beagle would be dead. One day, having mustered some misguided impulse to waddle off the porch, down the front walk, and into the street to be run over by one of the few cars driving down the street that morning. The Bergeron's hysterical terrier would be buried in their backyard, having hurled itself at last through the bay window in a spectacular shower of broken glass to die bleeding on the lawn. Fabi came awake the next day to the early morning sounds of other people, shifting in their berths, clearing their lungs with morning coughs, murmuring to travel companions above or below them. When she returned from breakfast, the porter had all of the berths tucked neatly away, and she took her seat, looking out the window to see how far they had come during the night. While she couldn't tell exactly where they were, the passing landscape was as familiar to her as her own name. Faded red barns, muddy, snow model fields, trees hung with hooded metal buckets. She was back in Vermont. Listeners, did you know that much of Elizabeth's fiction is inspired by her family history, and lately she has developed an interest in writing about her family's genealogy. Learn about her attempts to stick to the facts of her family history by visiting Elizabeth at genealogylizgafro.com. Thank you for joining Elizabeth and me on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. I invite you to meet up with her on Goodreads. And you are only an internet click away from her website, lizgafro.com. It is a place where stories dwell. And until next time, dear friends, stay safe and be well. Mm-hmm.